And so we're looking at the last words that he spoke. What was he talking about during that last week? What were the lessons that he wanted to get across? What, what did he eventually say to his disciples as he was a, his ready to ascend into heaven? What was he teaching them? And so if we can learn his words and understand them, then we'll understand what was going on inside of his heart. And if we understand his heart, we'll understand sort of where he was going, the direction of his life, and then ultimately his will for us. And so uh, that's sort of, sort of what we've been looking at. Tonight we're going to look at a prayer that Jesus prayed, which is sort of a prayer for the ages. I mean, if, if there's a, a prayer that has had great impact throughout the last 2,000 years, this is certainly one of them. It's recorded in the book of John, and we'll, we'll look at it. But it is a... It is a multifaceted prayer, and, and as we look at this, we're really we're not, not going for trying to break down and now let's learn how to pray, although you can certainly draw some parallels from that. I don't necessarily think that the point that Jesus was making is here's how to pray, but it can be a, a secondary application for you. So I think as we look at it, keep it in your mind. You know, this, this is sort of a model of how, how Jesus prayed, talking to God, and this was at the end of his life, and so obviously... Uh, it has some importance there. But I think more than that, I really want us to focus on what was Jesus praying? What were the words that he said? Who was he thinking of? What was he talking about? And so uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that we'll learn in this prayer that not only did he have things during that time in mind, but he had us in mind. And, and, and that, to me, if you take nothing else away from tonight, just know that Jesus, when he walked the earth, when he talked to God, that He had us in mind. Uh, he valued and cared and loved us enough to pray for us. We'll see that. So if you got your Bible, turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can kind of follow along. What I'd like to do, at least for the first part tonight, is sort of handle this a little bit like a Bible study. And so what I mean by that is I'm going to ask some questions that are not necessarily rhetorical. I would like an answer. All right, But I'm not going to put you on the spot or call you out. I just would, would, and I'm going to try not to make them trick questions, or you think, oh, goodness, I'm not really sure. I don't want to look foolish in front of everybody. That's not the kind of question I'm going to ask. So as you, as you look at this, just begin to think about some of the themes and, and, and so on. There are three sections to this prayer. If you, if you see in your Bible, let's, let's look at those very quickly. Some of your Bibles may have some headings there. And if, if they do, let's, let's look. I'm going to make these real easy. If your Bible has some headings, they probably have three different ones in this particular chapter. The first heading says something like what? Does anybody have that? Yeah, Jesus prays for himself. And so he, he spends the first part of this prayer praying for himself to God. What, what's the second part? Yeah, his immediate disciples. He prays for his disciples. So he spends several verses there. And then finally, the last part is what? Yeah, all believers, just those who would follow. Those, that's us, those people that would come after. So let's look at, let's look at the first part of this, and, I, and, and we're going to spend, just so you know, we'll spend the most amount of time looking at what he prayed for all believers because that has the most direct application to us today. But I want us to kind of hit some of the highlights of the other prayers. Jesus prays for himself. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the, one, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. 
I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. This, obviously, uh, you can pick up on some things here. A very, very obvious question. What is the shortest passage of Scripture in this chapter? Which section? Not a trick question. Which one? Yeah, it's, it's this one we just read. Five verses, he covers praying for himself. If you're looking for that application on, well, what's maybe a model of prayer I should take? Understand, when Jesus was praying at the very end of his life, when he's about to be crucified, this happens just as we looked at John chapter 13 this morning when they were in the upper room. This happens after they've walked toward the Garden of Gethsemane and he's going to be praying and then later arrested and then put on trial and crucified. This happens right before his crucifixion. If there's ever a time he should have focused on himself, you'd think it'd be now. Again, if, I, if, if, if I'm the star of this story, this stuff's probably all flipped around a little bit because God and I are going to have some conversations. We're going to talk about this. Now, wait just a second. Now, I know I have been put here to you know pay for sin and all that stuff, but you know I've seen people be crucified. It ain't pretty. You know, I mean, I'm talking to God about the five verses all he spends talking about himself. Five verses. Uh, just in and of itself, I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged to reflect on how much of my prayer life is really directed toward me and my stuff and what's going on with me and my world and all that. And so he spends the shortest amount of time talking about himself. And then he he mentions eternal life, and he says in verse 5, look at what eternal life is. He says, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. He, he obviously knows that eternal life is granted only by grace through our faith. And, and if there's ever a question in your mind of, well, am I earning my way to heaven? Am I doing enough good things? Maybe I'm okay. It all comes down to this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. And, and it's interesting in verse 4, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. One of my goals, and I, and I, I sometimes will will sort of sign my name on a on a letter or card after this statement for His glory. I want my life to be about the glory of God. I don't fully understand it all yet. I'm not sure that I ever will, but that's what I want to be set on. I want to be set on making God look good through what I do. Jesus said, "God, I've glorified you. I've made you look good. I've brought you fame by completing the work you gave me to do." Now, we look at Jesus and we think, golly, you know, that's, he did an awful lot. But he simply completed the work God gave him to do. For some of us tonight, maybe we think, well, I don't have anything spectacular that's going on in my life. I've never really done anything outstanding for God. Just complete the work he's given you to do. Whatever it is that God puts before you, whatever vocation you happen to be in, whatever line of work, whatever stage of life, wherever you are, however much family you have, just complete the work He's given you to do. The task that He has given you, the mission that He has given you. Jesus said, I've glorified you by completing the work you gave me to do. The second section, He prays for His disciples. <clears throat> the first few verses here sort of highlight this relationship that He's had with His disciples and, and how He's loved them and, and He's praying for them and so on. And, and then He gets to, to verse 14 in this section. I want you to focus in with me for just a second on this. <clears throat> and He says this, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. I am not praying 
that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I, am, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may be sanctified by the truth. Think about what Jesus here is praying. Now, this sounds like an awful lot of repetitions, some churchy-type words. What does all this stuff really mean? But think about what he's praying for his disciples. Verse 14, look at it again. Let's, let's answer some questions that are not trick questions, just simply from the Bible here. What is he praying for them in verse Excuse me, verse 15. I am, I am not praying what? Not praying that God does what for his disciples? Yeah, that he, that he takes them out of the world. You know, it, we, we sometimes want to be just taken out of the world. And the world's an evil place. There's no question about it. And sometimes it gets a little bit tough because in verse 14, Jesus said the world hates them. You're set up against them. Understand that as a, as a Christian who is committed to following Jesus Christ... You have now become not of the world, which means that since you don't capitulate any more to that system, you are now set up to be hated by that system. And that's tough. How many people do you know? How many Christians have you seen that will give in to the world system because they fear being hated by that system? The least little bit of resistance, sort of, well, let me back off just a little bit. I'm not sure that I really need to go all the way with this Jesus thing because, well, that offended somebody at work. Uh, that, that didn't quite make mom or dad happy. I didn't really understand that at school. And Jesus said, the world's going to hate you. Now, does that mean that you're going to face persecution like Jesus did? Not necessarily. In America, we've got it pretty good. We really do. I haven't lived in foreign countries to know really how, how good we have it, but we really do. We have it pretty good. <clears throat> but the truth is that if you really follow Jesus, you're going to live in opposition to the world. Now, that doesn't mean that you live in opposition to everybody in the world. It just means that the system is in opposition to your newness in your life. So he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that what? But that God does what while they're in the world? <clears throat> What's that? Yeah, he keeps them from evil. He protects them from the evil one. And so this, this mission that Jesus had been on was now extended to his disciples. And he goes on to say, as you have sent me into the world, now I'm sending them. And Jesus was going to be with the Father, but the disciples' work was not done. And so he, was, he knew that in order for the mission to carry on, these guys had to stay there. They couldn't just retreat all the time from the world. I'll tell you one of the things I struggle with, quite honestly, <clears throat> because I work in the church and I live right across the street, and if I don't really want to, I don't have to go anywhere else. I struggle with sometimes living in this little bubble, this Christian church bubble. Because sometimes I don't, I mean, I walk across the street to go to work, and then when I'm done with work, I walk back home, and that's just it. And it, it gets difficult. Maybe as you've seen in your life, as maybe you get a little bit older, you realize that it's easier and easier to sort of live in that bubble. Because maybe you don't work at the same place you used to work. You're not around the same people that you used to be around. Those folks who really need Jesus, maybe now you're just around church folks most of the time. And Jesus said, well, hold, hold on just a second. I, I didn't pray that God would, would take them out of the world, but that while they're in the world, He would keep them from evil. And it's a challenge for me in particular, and I hope for you as well, to be actively seeking ways to get involved in the world while God protects me from what's going on in the world from its system. And so he says there's more work to do. He also says that because there's more work to do, 
in uh, verse 17, he says, sanctify them by the truth. That word sanctify, maybe you've heard that word before. And that's a real uh, church kind of terminology, biblical word, that, that simply means that you're set apart for some special use. That you've been set over here to the side because you've got something different you're going to do than everybody else. And so Jesus praying for his disciples. He said, God, set them apart. Do something different in their life. And he says, do it by the truth. And then he says, your word is the truth. Uh, I'm always amazed at the people that Jesus chose to be his disciples. <clears throat> and and it's, it's a ragtag bunch of guys that were fishermen. One was a tax collector. And you just had some, what we would look at today and think, just kind of some rough characters. Just some guys that you just, you know, they're not the PhDs in top of their class, and they're not the guys who probably are the sharpest dressed, and they probably didn't talk and think and act and smell the right way all the time. They just were normal, ordinary, kind of almost on the fringes kind of guys. And Jesus chose them. And he said, you're not going to be sanctified or set apart because of your talent. You're not going to be sanctified or set apart because of how smart you are or how rich, or how poor, or whatever you may be. He says, you're going to be sanctified and washed clean and made new and made ready for this work by the truth, and the truth that is God's Word. So if you're in the boat that says, you know, I, I'm not sure I can really do anything in life. I know God's put me here for a reason, but I'm, you know, golly, I don't have the right kind of education. You know, I, I, I don't have the money. I don't live in the right place. I'm not around the right people. Jesus wanted his disciples to complete the mission by being sanctified by God's word, by being set apart by his word, not because of their education. And then, as I said, I'd like to focus a little bit on, on this third section. Because Jesus, it says in verse 20, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. That's us. The message Jesus already anticipated would be effective. He knew that the mission of these disciples would, would be completed. That these guys would take the message of Jesus Christ and spread it. And what's amazing is this stuff didn't happen in America down the street. This stuff happened over in around the Mediterranean. And now here we are today in West Kentucky sitting in a church because we believed through their message. And so Jesus is talking about and praying for us and if you look, let's read some of these verses. And here's what I want you to pick up on. Read it with these questions in mind. What's he praying for? Sort of what, what's his main theme? What seems to be recurring over and over in his words to God? Let's, let's look at it. Verse 21. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be completely one so that the world, excuse me, may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire those you, you have given me to be where I am. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you. And these have known that you, have, that you sent me. <clears throat> I made your name known to them and will make it known. So the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. What is one of the themes here? You picking up on anything, especially in those earlier verses? What's Jesus praying for, for the people who would believe? Unity. 
He says over and over, may they be one. Isn't it interesting what he prayed for? And, and there's a lot of things we could list that he didn't pray for. I mean, these, these verses, six, six verses here that Jesus lays out, what, why would he just pray for unity? It's interesting to me to read this and think, well, goodness, you know, he didn't, he didn't pray for, you know, that, that they never experience a, a problem. He never prayed that, you know, that they would not encounter any difficulty in life. He just prayed that they'd be one. And he, and he prayed it in a sense of, of, of that they would be one, that we would be one just as who are one. Who's he, who's he comparing it to? Who's that? Yeah, he and God. Now, you think about that for just a second. Think about who he's comparing that oneness to. The, the oneness that he had with the Father. He wanted us to experience that same oneness with everybody else. And that goes a whole lot further, a whole lot further than just shaking a hand and saying, hey, how are you doing? That goes a whole lot further than just lip service toward unity to say, yeah, hey, I love everybody here. I love all my Christian brothers and sisters. You know what? We've got a church full of great people. I love all those. It goes further than that, although that may be included but it goes further. It's not based on some cliche of, hey, we're unified here. We, we never have a problem. It's not based on blind unity, that we ignore anything that may be happening. But it's interesting that that, that unity is, is one of unity in spirit, unity of nature. Think about the way that Jesus was with God and still is. He's unified in spirit. They are one in spirit. They're one in nature. Jesus was God in human flesh. He was an extension of God here, thinking and valuing the same things. The message that Jesus proclaimed, and he said it over and over, I, I tell you what God has told me. I am giving you what God has, has, has sent me to give you. You see the same outcomes and goals in life. That's what, we, that's what we have in Jesus. Verse 23 says this. I think it's so interesting. May they be, completely, may they, may they be made completely one. And here's the purpose so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The purpose of our unity then that Jesus is praying for is not so that we can sit back and relax and just reflect on the greatness of our unity. Oh, isn't it awesome that we haven't experienced the problems like they've experienced. Goodness, their church is just split right down the middle. Thank God we don't have that because we're unified. That's certainly part of it, and I hope that's the case always here at Home Grove. But the greater purpose of our unity is the mission that God has given us. The purpose is so that people may see a unified body of believers and ultimately then know that you have sent me, Jesus says, and that you have loved them as you have loved me. Our unity drastically affects the success of our, of our mission. Think about it. <clears throat> How many people do you know would want to be a part of a movement like Christianity or a church that is absolutely divided against itself? How many people are saying, let me sign up for that? That sounds really great. You know what? They argue and fight all the time. They can't agree on anything. They seem to be going in a hundred different directions. That's, that's what I want to be a part of. Nobody in their right mind wants to sign up for that. There's nobody in their right mind who looks from the outside wondering what Christians are all about and says, well, they just seem to hate each other. Let me join up. That sounds great. I just want to hate everybody too. Nobody signs up for that. 
Nobody is compelled to come to Christ because of disunity. But when there is unity of spirit, unity of nature, unity based upon genuine love and understanding of people, then it's a compelling force. There is something about a unified church, a unified body of believers, unified Christians, that is attractive and compels other people to want to know, how can I get in on that? And so our unity drastically affects the success of our mission. In these three sections, there are, there are some overall themes that I, that I want us to make sure that we get, sort of as we, as we kind of wrap our arms around this whole thing. One of which was that they and we, both the disciples then and then Jesus' prayer in the third section for us, were, con- were to continue the mission of reaching the world. And Jesus says, as, I am, as, as you have sent me, I'm sending them. And then he prays for us that, that the world may know that you have sent me. So we're, we're a part of the mission that he started. Jesus didn't come just so that Christians could have it easy. He came so that the world could see that he loves them and would give his life for them. Also, that, the, that they needed to be sanctified. They needed to be set apart. And that was only going to happen through their digestion and infiltration of God's word in their, in their lives. You ever tried it differently? You ever tried to sort of rely on your talent or your giftings or just uh, winging it, so to speak, your personality, all those things? And then there's this big gap between who you are on the outside and who you really are on the inside because you haven't met the, the qualifications of, of sanctification being set apart with God's word. You've met it with talent, with, with charisma, with personality, and all that stuff. And Jesus said it's only going to happen through the word of God. And then and finally, they needed to be unified. This mission required that they be clean and sanctified and, and have the Word of God in them, and at the same time that they be completely unified. And, I, and I, I started thinking about this, and by no means is this an exhaustive list, and by no means is any of this stuff new. But I thought, what are the things that we just got to agree on? I mean, what are the things that there's just no-brainers? I mean, if we don't agree on this, and we're, we're sunk... What are, what are those things? Now, we could make a long, long list, I'm sure, of things, and, and you may have other things that you would add to this particular list, or you'd take off the list or whatever. <clears throat> and these, like I said, are, there's not, these aren't new things. These are all just based on the life of Jesus and the Scripture and that kind of thing. But I, what are the things that we've got to agree on no matter what? I, I want to, what's that? Absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's amazing that Jesus, you know, I, I, you mentioned that, and, and you know Jesus said that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. And and the book of John, if you if you've not read the book of John lately or ever, pick it up uh, and and take a look at it. Read the Bible; it'll do you some good. Um, I'd say that to myself too. But um, but you know it's amazing that Jesus called his disciples, called us to love one another just as he had loved us. Do a little study on the love of Jesus and what it really meant, what he did to demonstrate it, what he did to show it. There are some things we've got to agree on, no matter what. I want to present to you, not in any sort of uh, big kind of way, but there's just things that God brought to my mind that I think are reflected in the life of Jesus in the Scripture. Just five things that I think if we move forward with these things, if we say, you know what, we're going to agree on these things no matter what, that, that we'll, we'll begin, if we're not already, begin to move toward unity that God can bless and God can use to reach the world around us. One of those is that we need to agree that the Word of God is supreme. It's supreme. It is our foundation. It is what we operate from. It's the settlement of our disagreements. If we need to know something, that's where we go. 
But we don't go on our own opinions. We go on the Word of God. The Word of God is supreme. I want that to be the case in everything that I tell you, in everything that we talk about, in the decisions that we make, and in and, and the way that we operate, the way we live our daily lives. The Word of God is supreme. Period. If you have nothing else to come back to, if you run low and you say, I don't know what to do, the Word of God is supreme. It is the guidebook for life, guaranteed. If you read it, if you study it, if you let it sink deep into your heart, some of you have experienced this, and if you, if you live it out, your life will never be the same. And, and it will provide for you a foundation that is solid for the rest of your life. One, that's one of the things. We, we, what can we be unified on? Jesus said, I pray that they are one. One of the things is that the Word of God is supreme. Another thing is that people matter more than things and traditions. People matter more than things and traditions. You know, Jesus, when he showed up to the Pharisees, and I don't claim, I'm not saying that you all are Pharisees, don't read into this, but you know one of the things that he said and and implied over and over was that you guys are putting all of your stuff and your traditions and all the things you do above the lost people that that are right around you that need to hear the truth of God's Word. I mean, have you ever experienced that in your own life? Maybe, maybe you've seen that happen and you just think, oh, just get all the junk out of the way and just tell that person about the Lord. I think one of the things we have to agree on, both as Christians and as a church, is that, you know what? The people that God brings in our path, they're more important than any of the things we have, any of the things we do, any of the traditions that we have, anything that we might start that becomes a tradition, anything at all. Those people are more important. Jesus himself demonstrated that over and over and over and over again. That people were more, were more important. People mattered more than things or traditions. Another thing is that we are in the business of making disciples. You know the Great Commission? <clears throat> A lot of times what we read that, when Jesus said, Go and make disciples of, you know, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. We, we think of that only in terms of missions and going out somewhere and sending people overseas and all of that stuff, and that is included. But the whole crux of that, what makes all that work, what really fulfills that mission is when he said, Go, and, and then what did, what did he say? Do what? What did he say? And teach, and, and in that, do what? What did he say? Make what? Make disciples. And he said, do that by teaching, do that by baptizing, do that by going, but the, but the whole point is, make disciples. You think about the disciples that follow Jesus around. I heard it said uh, in, in something I was reading, you know, that you may follow a particular sports team. And I have to be honest with you that today when Louisville lost, I was upset for a little while. But, you know, the truth be told, I'll get over that. It's not something that's going to crush my world for the next week. Certainly I'm a fan. Certainly I wanted them to win. Certainly I hope they win every game they play. I'm a fan. But I I just kind of follow them. I haven't devoted my life to the University of Louisville. When these disciples answered the call of Jesus when he said, Come, follow me. It wasn't as if they were going to follow a sports team and be a little bit upset when they lost or a little bit happy when they won for a time and then go about their business. This was a lifelong commitment 
to be an absolute zealot for Jesus Christ. Those disciples understood that. And so when Jesus, at the end of his time, right before he ascends, says, go and make disciples, they would have immediately realized, wait a minute, that's us. We're totally committed to this guy in every aspect of our lives, willing to leave everything behind in order to follow him. That's what we're trying to replicate. In our church, I, I, my prayer is that we will be in the business of making disciples just like the ones we read about in the New Testament, in Acts, who are willing to give their very lives, who are devoted to Jesus regardless of the cost. Think about what would happen in our community, in our church, in our state, wherever we are, if we had people who were absolute zealots for Jesus Christ, not just casual followers, what if we were in the business of making disciples? Another thing is this, that I think we have to agree that we will be known as the friends of sinners. You know, one of the things that Jesus took the most heat over was that they called him, and it wasn't a, a hey, good job. It was a, what is he doing kind of moment. He's a friend of sinners. What's he doing going to that guy's house? What's he doing hanging out with Zacchaeus? Doesn't he know Zacchaeus is a thief? He steals money from everybody. There's nothing we can do about it, but we hate him. Doesn't he know that? Jesus was a friend of sinners, and he got in some serious trouble over that. I don't know what that would look like in your life or my life, but if we're going to pattern ourselves after Jesus Christ, both as individuals and as a church, we've got to be the friends of sinners. There's no way around it. Boy, sometimes I wish there were. Sometimes I wish you just said, you know, Jesus would just say, you know what, just huddle up. Wait for me to return and come back, and y'all just sing kumbaya till I come back. He didn't say anything like that. Wouldn't it be great, though, if we could just get away with living in this little bubble sometimes? Boy, it'd be great. But Jesus demonstrated, I think forcefully, the fact that, you know what, we've got to bust that bubble. We've got to be the friends of sinners. There are going to be some people, hopefully the Lord will bring to this church, that we think, oh my goodness, we got some work to do. But praise God when their lives are changed. When Jesus enters their life, just like he did the life of Zacchaeus, that guy was never the same. There's evidence, obviously, his life was changed. Be the friends of sinners. That's one of the things I think we've got to agree on. Do I know what that looks like yet? I don't have any idea. We're going to figure it out as we move together. But I tell you what, if we're committed to say, you know what, we're going to be the friends of sinners, I think God can do something. I think, I think we'll mirror Jesus in such a way that, that the sinners in our community which, as we boil it down, includes us to begin with, but the people who are far from God will say, you know what, there's somebody there who's close to God who actually seems to care about me. And they didn't just smack me in the head with a Bible. They actually put their arm around me and said they were happy I was there. They actually seemed to value me as a person. I'm telling you what, you'd floor somebody. Because there are people, you, you know them and I know them, all around us, in our country and our world, that have been so put off by the fact that Christians throughout the years and the ages, have just sort of acted like, well, you're a sinner, get out of here. What if we flipped it? To be known as the friends of sinners. And then, and then I think one thing finally that we must agree on is that it's not about us. In Psalm chapter 115, you don't have to turn there, but verse 1, <clears throat> David says, Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. 
We are not in all of these things in agreement on the Word of God is supreme, that people matter more than traditions or things, or that, that we're in the business of making disciples, or that we're the friends of sinners, so that people would look at Elm Grove Church and say, what an incredible church. Isn't that great? We're not in the business of all those things so that we can write books about it and make lots and lots of money. Here's how we do church. Here's how you ought to do it as well. We're in this for one reason and one reason alone, and that is for God's glory. That's it. And I'm telling you, there is no greater reason to be in it. All the books that we could write, all the recognition we could receive, anything that could be said great about us pales in comparison. And eventually we'll simply burn up, the Bible talks about it, in comparison to God's glory that will last forever. It's not about us. What if we agreed on these things? Jesus prayed that we would be unified. We could add to this list a lot of different things. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not something to be legalistic about. I'm going to check it off next week if you remembered all these things. That's not the point. But I just think the life of Jesus and the Scripture mirrors some of these things. The Word of God is supreme. We just bank our lives and our church on that. People matter more than things or traditions. Nothing gets in the way of lost people coming to Jesus. Nothing at all. We're in the business of making disciples. People are just zealous for Jesus Christ. It starts with us. That's what we're going to be, and we're going to be in the business of, of replicating that. That we'll be known as the friends of sinners, just like Jesus was. We may take some heat over it. People may not understand. A person sitting next to you tonight may not understand. But you know what? They didn't understand Jesus either. Our goal is not to be understood. Our goal is for God's glory. And, and we'll be in it for not us, but for His glory and His alone. And Jesus prayed this prayer for the ages to, to set up the disciples for this mission, to pray for us. And He said, I am in them and you are in me. May they be completely one so that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. If we are completely one, if we have in us unity of spirit and unity of nature, unity of the things that we've talked about tonight, and we'll complete that mission. These last words of Jesus during this prayer, right before chapter 18 actually begins with Him being betrayed, right before all of that, made it clear that His purpose for us is to be united and for the purpose of reaching the world. Jesus didn't come just for the folks that were His close buddies. He came for us. He came for the people who aren't yet here. He came for the sinners. And so maybe, maybe as we look at these, you're challenged, I know I am, to just simply say, you know what, how can we produce and promote the unity within our church so that the world outside of here will somehow be attracted to us and our relationship with each other and with God in such a way that they'll see and believe in the one that God sent. I would, I would, would love it if over time we just saw more and more and more, even more so than we already have, of unity, focus, and purpose. Here's where we're going. And this is what we're getting done. We're going to make disciples. We're going to be the friends of sinners. God can bless a, a group of people like that. He blessed those disciples who went out and did just what Jesus did. So maybe that hits you somewhere, or maybe it, it just spurs you on a little bit, and maybe it encourages you just a tad to say, you know, I'm, I'm doing that stuff, then keep going. And if not, you know what? Turn around. Let's get on board with it. Maybe if you're on the fence, then fall on the side of the fence that is unity, and, and help, us, help us do what God has called us to do. 
I got an email from a friend this morning who was about to run a marathon. And, uh, and he, he ran this marathon this morning. He said, I've got, he's, I've got over four hours to pray for you this morning. And I said, man, that's awesome. He said, God's going to do something in Murray today. I don't know what God did in Murray today. I don't know. But he, you know, he did something in me, and I'm excited about it. But God wants to do something in Murray. This town, it maybe gets no recognition, no, you know, Eddie Clyde knows about it. You're a magistrate. You know what? We're maybe a little dot on the map to a lot of people. But God knows where we live. God cares about the lost people in Murray. And if we're unified, if we have the same purpose, if we have that focus, the mission that God gave us, then I guarantee you we'll see over the years some incredible things happen in Murray, Kentucky, of all places. And we can stand back and say, you know what? I got to be a part of that. And it wasn't about me, but I, man, I'm thankful I got to be a part of what God was doing. So the choice, I guess, is ours. Are we going to pursue that or, or not? And I, I pray and hope that we'll go after that.